0: If you were to look up the definition of a handyman, I promise you, you would not find a picture of me in that dictionary. For instance, this past Sunday, we needed to replace our current dryer because according to Abby, it smelled like fish. Um, Okay, sure it did. And um, we were going to replace it with a new dryer and in order for me to do that, I would have had to have unscrewed the cord from one and attached it to this other one we were going to use. And in my mind, I was thinking, man, we need a, a professional electrician to come in here and do this. Like, this is, this is huge work. There's no way I can do this. And so I'm ping ponging ideas in my head, like, who can I ask to come and do this work for me? Because I don't want to at all. And after just trying to get out of it, I was like, okay, I'll just look up a video. Shouldn't be that hard. And... I, I watched a video. Turns out it takes all of five minutes to unscrew something and screw it back on. And as I'm preparing my sermon this week, I'm thinking back to that time this past Sunday. And I'm like, was I really trying to get out of five minutes worth of work for the ability to push a button and have my clothes dried for me like super quickly? How spoiled am I as a human, right? How spoiled are we as, as people, that we come to have this idea that I can just push a button and have all this work done for me instantly. And like the process of actually like plugging it in is too much work. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. If you were to talk to somebody 200 years ago about all the developments that we've made and say, hey, instead of you having to put your clothes on a line constantly and just wait for a day for it to dry, <sighs> just be like, oh yeah, you can throw it in here, push a button and it'll be done. They'd be like, what? That's magic. And don't we operate today that we have to have immediate results for like the smallest amount of work? We are accustomed to no longer having to go outside and actually cutting a tree down, bringing it back and lighting it on fire for the sake of light and warmth. We can now flip a switch or even better have our smart home sync the right times that the lights are supposed to be on and turn them off automatically. We don't have to physically write mail anymore and send it with the carrier and pray and hope that it actually gets to the destination. And who knows how long it's going to take before it gets there. We can voice text with Siri and have something sent across the globe in an instant. We have grown accustomed to expecting to hit the magic button or say the magic words and have an instant result. But this isn't new. That's what I would consider the promise of magic And the definition we're going to be using for that this morning is minimal effort for maximum reward. That is the promise of magic. And Andy Crouch, he's a Christian scholar, he said that's actually a very ancient desire. It's a very ancient promise. It goes back to the serpent. The serpent's promise to Adam and Eve was that if you just simply eat this fruit, then you will instantly be made like God when the truth was that they were already made like God in the most important ways. And I'm sure over time, God was going to explain to them the contours of the world so as long as it made sense for them to know it. But they instead wanted the fast track. They wanted the magic of being able to just do something and instantly be made like God. They wanted all profit, no process. And really that fruit in the garden was the first technological device. It was the first kind of magic as I'm defining it today. And it's super ironic that in our pockets, the device, the logo on the back of these devices that serve as magic for us, that we can hit buttons and have instant results is literally an apple with a bite out of it. Like you can't make this stuff up. But we want easy magic, not hard process, and transformation. We want to maximize our power, our ability, our fulfillment, but we want the magic to have it exactly how we want it, and exactly when we want it. And though we may have that expectation for so many things in life, we cannot expect those magical immediate results whenever it comes to living a powerful Jesus-centric life. If you would go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 19, We're going to begin in verse 11, and we're wrapping up this series, Church on Fire. So we have this week, and next week is the grand finale, so we're going to go out with a bang. Um, But this has been a really convicting series for me. (laughs) Reading all of this and studying it, I feel like God has placed a lot on my heart to kind of like, hey, maybe you should start taking your walk with Jesus even more seriously, But we've been looking at how spirit-empowered people of God took the good news of Jesus and spread it to the world. And today, we're picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago in Ephesus. Whenever Paul is really wrestling with being rejected by his Jewish brothers and sisters in the synagogue in Ephesus. And we'll pick up in verse 11. It says, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual, or in, in Greek, masterful, miracles. When handkerchiefs and aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. (laughs) Could you imagine Paul, like, he's about to sneeze and he just reaches for a cloth and goes, (laughs) and then the person's cloth, he grabs it and is healed and he says, God bless you. That is the origin of how we got that uh, saying. No, it's not. Um, But. Seriously, it's wild the amount of power that Paul had through the Holy Spirit. And it reminds you a lot of Jesus, right? People touched the garments of Jesus and they were healed miraculously. This is a special anointing from God to Paul. And in verse 13, it says, A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. And just as a quick aside, throughout time and in cultures today, many cultures today, there is a huge awareness of the spiritual realm. In Western thought, we have kind of, over time, wanted to dismiss that way of thinking, that, you know, demons not real, Satan not real, that sort of thing. I, I do believe in the spiritual realm. I do think it's a thing. And I remember in Mozambique that we would go by houses of witch doctors. And they, did, they had so much power over their communities, a lot of dark magic, evil stuff. And one of the biggest selling points, actually, of the gospel was talking to them about Jesus actually has power over that. Jesus has power over the schemes of darkness, has dominion over everything in the world. And that made people feel like they could face some of this darkness with courage. But throughout time, there's been a desire to want to conquer the evil spirits, to defeat them, cast them out, that sort of thing. And that's still a thing today. But these individuals that were trying to cast out spirits, it says they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, and Sceva, he was a leading priest, and the seven sons here, that could be literal sons or his disciples, we don't know, but they were the ones doing this. But one time when they tried it, so they may have tried this a couple times, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus. I know Paul, but who are you? The man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked or subdued or mastered them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. This is a very interesting story, isn't it? So these individuals are trying to use the name of Jesus like this magic formula. They've seen Paul do this sort of thing, and they want that power instantly as well. They want that magic that Paul has. And the irony is a lot of times in exorcisms, the person that is trying to exorcise the demon out of them tries to identify the demon, but here the demon is identifying the person. Normally, the person casts out the demon, but here the demon is casting out the persons. Normally, you would think that the demon is the one that is naked and wounded, but the demon-possessed person causes all of these people to run away naked and wounded. It's, it's an irony, it's an intentional flip here. But that response from one of the evil spirits, that's haunting, isn't it? At least, I mean, for me it is. I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? They are terrified of Jesus. Demons know them, Know him, and demons are so scared. Demons beg for Jesus to spare their life. Demons are terrified of Paul, too, because Paul lives and walks in the way of Jesus. I mean, he even has the same clothing power that Jesus has in, his, in the Gospels. But for the rest of these sons of Sceva, they're like, who are these guys? They weren't known by the demons. They weren't even mildly concerned about these people. They were nobodies to the kingdom of darkness. They weren't even in their game plan. As football season's coming up, I I think a lot about Tom Brady terrorizing the NFL for however long he was in it. And how much time and energy and effort that defensive coordinators have to put together to game plan around this guy. How are we gonna stop Tom Brady? But I'm pretty certain that most of these coordinators are not spending any time thinking about the third stringer that's never going to see the field. So similarly, if demons spend time scheming and coming up with plans to stop the kingdom of God, the seven sons of Sceva weren't even on their radar. They weren't even concerned about them. And that question, who are you? That's such a diss. And I could imagine maybe the sons of Sceva had a little bit of pride in them, like, who am I? I'm the son of the leading priest. I'm in the synagogue every week. I read scripture every day. But they were nobodies to the kingdom of darkness. And that question and that prospect is kind of terrifying to me. It makes me ask myself, am I living a life in which demons aren't even concerned about me? Am I living a life that is feared by hell? Or am I simply paying lip service to the name of Jesus? Some of the scariest words in scripture to me comes from Matthew 7. These are the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, be prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. So some of those who, I mean, this seems like important stuff, casting out demons. Like, people who are doing that may not really know Jesus. That's, that's an interesting prospect. And it makes me realize that what they were doing is really paying Jesus lip service. Going through the motions and not actually doing the will of God. And this is a very sobering thing. And I believe Matthew 7 and Acts 19 makes it very clear that talking the talk alone doesn't seem like it works. Living like Jesus makes hell terrified. It's not simply proclaiming his name. It is being in Christ. It is walking in step with the Holy Spirit to walk in the way of Jesus. That is what makes the kingdom of darkness scared. And that's what I want for my life. I don't want to just proclaim the name of Jesus. I don't want to treat Jesus like this magic formula or car insurance that whenever I die, I'm guaranteed to be in heaven. That's not what I want for my life. I pray that all of my life is surrendered to the will and the authority of Jesus. You know, whenever you're on a body of water and you see boats go by and there's this wake that they leave, this ripple effect that goes throughout the body of water, I pray similarly that my life leaves heaven in my wake that through my life the path that I was on there is a ripple effect of the kingdom of God from my life I want to be such a force for good that demons fear my name like they did Paul and Jesus not because I want to pat myself on the back or I did it by my own effort but because I am truly living in step with the spirit of God and living like Jesus I want to be known and feared by hell that doesn't happen from just talking the talk. From knowing my way around the Bible or being able to craft half-decent sermons, that comes from the sanctifying process of the Holy Spirit in my life. That comes from Jesus chipping away at me, refining my character, reorienting my will and my desires to be more in step with His. And though it's the Spirit of God who forms us and transforms us, we must take our part in this spiritual journey extremely seriously we must open ourselves up to the refiner's fire we need to surrender space in our life to the lord and seek transformation not through magic and being able to snap our fingers and to fully be like him but through hard (laughs) and intentional discipline because as much as we want our process to become like christ to be magic it's a long journey as are often the best things in life. So let's continually reorient our lives as a church in the way of Jesus, to live lives of solitude and prayer and fasting, to fight against the cultural sickness right now of busyness and take dedicated Sabbath time, to live generous with our lives, both in our time and our money. Listen to the call of the oppressed. Truly listen to the call of the oppressed, not just say we do on Instagram but do something about it. Let's be a community that values love above everything else. So this year, we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about walking in the way of Jesus and walking in the way of Jesus. Because if we are not formed by Christ, church, we're going to be a nobody to the kingdom of darkness. But more importantly, we won't leave the presence of heaven or the aroma of Christ in our wake. I love seeing how this story in Acts 19 it ends. After seeing all of Paul's mag- or powerful work and also the demons overpowering other people and, and trying to treat Jesus like magic, we read this in verse 17. It says, The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars, and in Greek, literally, that's 50,000 drachmas, and it's thought that a drachma was a day's wage. So this is a huge cost to these people. Can you imagine the side of this? A bunch of wizards getting together and take all their spell books, and they throw it on this massive public bonfire. That's what repentance looks like. That's saying, I'm done with this stuff, I'm burning it. I'm living a new way. And they were taking it very seriously. And in verse 20, I love how it ends. The message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Because of the true power of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life, the message of the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. And that didn't come from Saying the magic words and wanting to fast track to have the power of Jesus without the transformation of Jesus. That came from Paul walking in step with the spirit and living like Jesus. And that's what made hell terrified of Paul. And whenever I think about someone who lived a life that was feared by hell, uh, one person that comes to mind is George Mueller. And I know I'm getting some brownie points with Albert by talking about him. Not only does this guy have like the best facial hair that you could imagine... He truly foiled some of the schemes of the kingdom of darkness. Mueller saw the need in his community. There were a lot of kids that didn't have parents. So he started an orphanage, and this is crazy. Through his life, it is estimated that he helped raise 10,000 orphans in his life. 10,000. He started 117 Christian schools, and it's thought that his actions led to the education of over 120,000 people. That's amazing. And humanitarians may look at George and think, wow, what a life. I mean, what an impact he did. He must have been such a kind person. But only thinking of that way is missing the point. There's this amazing quote by William Henry Harding about Mueller. He says, the world, dull of understanding, has even yet not really grasp the mighty principle upon which Mueller acted, but is inclined to think of him merely as a nice old gentleman who loved children, a sort of glorified guardian of the poor. To describe him thus, however, is to degrade his memory, is to miss the high spiritual aim and the wonderful spiritual lesson of his life. The world regards the orphan houses only with the languid interest of mere humanitarianism, And remains oblivious of their extraordinary witness to the faithfulness of God. Mueller wasn't doing this to win an award. Or to make humans think that he's a nice, kind person. He was doing it to fight against the kingdom of darkness. He was doing it for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of heaven. And how he did this is even more amazing. He didn't go, whenever problems came up about needing to feed all the kids or problems came up with any sort of strategy. He didn't go to a whiteboard and he wasn't like, okay, so here's how we're gonna tackle this. He immediately went to God every time and he expected God to answer his prayers. So there were moments where they were needing food in this orphanage and he gets together with a group of people and they pray diligently for God. Minutes later, there's a bread cart that breaks down right in front of the orphanage and it's more than enough than they need. There are other times where they were needing financial help They pray about it, and then there are people that come knocking on the door with money in hand. That's more than what they need. He was walking in step with the Spirit of God. Every part of his life was surrendered to the will of the Lord. He didn't do something like this because he tried harder and did better. He did it because he was surrendered to the Lord. He was surrendered to the Spirit. Mueller's life is a testament to walking in the way of Jesus. And no doubt in his life, he was feared by the darkness. And there are so many stories of people that I could use like his. And I know that there are people in this room. I know that there's people in this church that the kingdom of darkness is terrified of because of the way that y'all have lived your life. And I am grateful that I'm a part of a church where I can say that. (laughs) But for many of us, maybe all of us, we might look at George Mueller's life and think, wow, wow. That's so unattainable. There's no way I could ever do something like that. And, And truthfully, God may not ever work in your life on as colossal of a scale that he did through Mueller. But you don't know that. We have no idea, even something as small as a few small steps in the right direction, a few small steps walking in the way of Jesus, we have no idea how an all-powerful God can work through us in that. We have no idea. There is no limit to what God can do through our lives. And even better, through a whole church that's on this journey together. And church, I pray that that's us. I pray that we are on this journey to walk in the way of Jesus together. That from the community's eyes, we're not seen just as an insignificant holder of space in downtown Franklin. We're not seen as just this glorified country club, but we are seen as a church on fire. A church that makes hell terrified. A church that leaves heaven in its wake. And we can be that church. We can. And in several ways, I know that's already true with the way that we are living our lives and the way that we are committed to the mission of God. But what if our entire church... Got a hunger for the mission of God together. That we lived in such a way that if our church magically disappeared tomorrow, our community would mourn because of how much of a force for good we were. That today, the kingdom of God is expanding because of our influence and it's closer than it was yesterday. And if we're all seeking this together, if we're helping sharpen one another for the mission of God, we will be a church. That is known for our love. Known for our care of the poor. Known for our reconciliation for people groups. All united under the banner of the Lord of the universe. We can be that church. So don't limit God. Don't limit what God can do in your life. And don't limit especially what God can do through a united body of believers. We can be that church. That makes hell terrified. So let's leave heaven in our wake. Lord, I pray that you help us not to just pay you lip service with our life. To not just live this shallow, surface-level Christianity, but really go deep in our transformation with you. I pray that you ignite a fire in our church this morning, Lord. May this today be a turning point for Fourth Avenue for generations to come. That we seek to be a church more than anything that is leaving heaven in our wake. That is bringing heaven to earth. That is partnering with you on the mission that you started since the beginning of time. Lord, I pray that this morning, I I know to become someone like a George Mueller, that takes time. That's a process. There's not like a magic switch. But this morning, I pray that you help us start small. Help us take that first step. Whether that's saying yes to you being the Lord of our life or whether that small step is just simple obedience and being a loving neighbor to our community around us. Lord, I pray that you speak into our lives right now and help us identify just one simple way that we can push against the kingdom of darkness, that we can begin to make our name feared by hell. We thank you, Jesus, for the power that you have over the darkness. We say this in your name. Amen. If you have any needs this morning, if there's anything going on in your life that you would like prayers for, we're going to have people line up around this room right now. If you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to be baptized today, we can make that happen. But please, if you're going through something, if God is stirring something in your heart, don't just sit on that. Share that. Share that in community, because we want to help you. We want to be that community of love. And uh, as we're singing about Jesus having power over the darkness. So go ahead and